Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, mamas. I'm your host, Chelsea Brandon, and today it's time for our first mailbag episode of 2021. In these episodes, I answer questions directly from listeners like you. These are some of my favorite episodes on the show because I get to hear exactly what money situations listeners are dealing with right now and offer my support. Now, we source these questions from our free Mamas Talk Money community on Facebook, which we'd love to have you join, and our voicemail where you can leave me an audio message at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash voicemail. If you have a question you'd love to hear us tackle, head to one of those two places and submit it for next month's episode. January's questions from the mamas in our community were amazing with a wide range of topics from where to save money from home renovations to cryptocurrency to credit cards. For an overview of this month's questions and to download your free Money Mamas Guide to Investing, head over to the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 90. All right, all right. Let's get Lauren on the show and dive into your questions. Lauren, how are you doing today? I am shocked to find out this is our first mailbag of 2021. You said said that and I was like, whoa, it is. (laughs) We are only like three weeks into the new year, which has been already a long three weeks. It has. <laughs> but we're recording this on Inauguration Day, which is actually, we're all a little bit nervous about how the rest of the day is going to go. I know you guys are all listening to this on Monday, and so it's all over at this point. But right now, Lauren and I are wondering what's going to happen during the day. But I'm actually so excited about just the historic things that are happening today. First of all, first female VP and woman of color. This is going to be a really amazing thing for our country. It's so exciting. I am a little apprehensive about today, but I'm still hopeful. Like I'm hopeful to like move on from all the crazy and I just hope everyone stays safe. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are hoping everybody stays safe. And I love that we also have the first first lady who's keeping her job while her husband is in office because we talk so much about working mothers and equality in relationships and really changing the dynamic about how we split work at Smart Money Mamas. And to see that kind of highest office really represent having a working mom is a really cool thing. That is really amazing. I think it's going to be a great thing for young girls, not young girls, all the girls (laughs) to see. (laughs) And we get to see um, VP Harris's husband is so supportive. And he is already like one of my favorite people to follow. He's like, his, he's changed his Twitter to being the first, the, the second gentleman and all of those things, which is which is really, really cute. Have you seen that tweet going around? That's like, has anyone asked the second gentleman what he's wearing tonight? <laughs> yes. I am ready for four years of comments like that to really get us focused on how ridiculous the double standards are about the way we talk about women and their work. Yeah, just to bring it up because as soon as you read it, you're just like, oh yeah, that that's crazy. <laughs> we definitely do, we definitely do that. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. We've also had, and it's been a long three weeks for us because we opened the reopened the doors to the Motivated Mama Society at the beginning of the year. <laughs> and we now have we now have almost 400 women in the group with us, which is just amazing. That's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> 
And just I'm, seeing, exci- I'm excited, but bananas. <laughs> it's just incredible to see the strides everybody's made just in these first couple of weeks going through Thriving Mindset, which is our first course in foundations, in, which is the kind of core of the society, about what they want to do with their money and uncovering old money stories and really rewriting them. It's been fun for me to see people make those big, have those big realizations. It's a lot of fun to see people going through foundations, which is something that we are constantly reminding people of. Like, this is something that you'll do time and time again. Like, you'll, you know, reach new goals and you might need to go back to foundations to see, you know, what your, what your new goals are, what your new path is. And it's a lot of fun to see so many people at so many different places in their journey starting Mm -hmm. to go through and do all of that work. Yeah, absolutely. Mamas, if you haven't yet joined the Motivated Mama Society, it is open anytime that you would like to join. You can go to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash join. We'd love to have you come spend some time with us, work your own way through foundations. And like Lauren said, we have people at all levels of their journey, people really, really early on figuring out budgeting and debt and people who are really on that financial independence path. And it's really cool to see everybody come together and talk about money. But Today, we're talking about questions from the community. We have some good questions today. Yes. Our first question comes from Christine, who asks, I recently opened 529 plans for my children. And while, I, <laughs> and while I was there, the representative told me that I should keep depositing into my 403B and before I retire, transfer the money into a Roth IRA. Does this make sense? Well, <laughs> um, you could do that. I'm not quite sure. Without, without the nuance of what the representative is, is recommending here, it's really hard to tell you whether it makes sense for you. I think for most people, this wouldn't be a recommendation I would make. So I'm going to make an assumption about what they're trying to guide you to do. And I'm going to tell you some little bit more details about what will happen if you actually do that. So the only reason I could think about making this recommendation is, one, you can put more money into a 403B than you can into an IRA, right? The limits on how much money you can put in a year into a 401k or a 403B are around $15,000 a year, while you're maxed in an IRA of at $6,000 a year. So you can save more for retirement in those vehicles. And so that might be a benefit to leaning that way. Or you earn too much money to do a Roth IRA now, and what they're recommending is to save in your 403B and do what's called a backdoor Roth transaction at the end to move into a Roth IRA. Now, backdoor Roth seem to come up like every other mailbag episode, which is really, really interesting to me. They seriously do. (laughs) And they're a pretty esoteric thing. Like Not a lot of people actually do them. And what the process is, Christine, is that you take money that's in a more traditional retirement vehicle. So a 403B, a 401k, a traditional IRA, and you transfer it into a Roth IRA. When you do that, that becomes a taxable event. So this is what I want you to know if you choose to do something like this. When you take that money from your 403B, you're first going to put it in a traditional IRA that it'll go into what's called a rollover IRA, and then you will transfer that money into a Roth. When you do that, all of that money that you transferred is now taxable income for the year that you made that transaction. So if you have $50,000 that you're putting in Roth, you're now going to owe 25 to 30% taxes on that money that you put in. So one, make sure you have the cash available to pay that tax bill. Then you have to wait five years, and then you can start pulling that money out without tax penalty. 
what this does is it means that you get the benefit of not worrying about income tax during withdrawals in retirement. Um, you don't have to worry about capital gains and all of those things. And it can be a benefit if if you think that long-term income tax rates are going to go up. Now, for most people, this is not a process that you're going to go through. It's not something that's going to save you a lot of money. It's going to cause a lot of tax headaches <laughs> for, for most people. And you really want to make sure if you're doing one of these transactions that you work with a CPA or you work with a certified financial advisor that can actually help you guide you through this because you don't want to end up getting on the wrong side of tax law here and end up losing a lot of money in fees and, and charges. What I'll mention to you is that 403Bs have notoriously high fees. They're not regulated in the same way of a 401k, uh, which is very disappointing because 403Bs are what we use for teachers and public service. And so, you know, we would hope that, that you have better options. It's just not how it works at this point. And so I'd pay attention to what are your fees in your 403B. Consider whether you're eligible to do an, an IRA right now, either a traditional or a Roth, and potentially, you know, put into your 403B if you have any match and get the match. And then focus on your IRA before going back to that 403B if you have extra money to invest is kind of what I would generally recommend. But what they're recommending is a backdoor Roth conversion. And it just it's it's more complicated than just that sentence that the representative told you in passing in the office. This is why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Because so obviously without knowing the details of the entire conversation, but so much advice like this goes around, like this situation doesn't even apply to me, but I can take out the simple nuggets of like, do the simple thing, pay attention to the fees, don't cause yourself a tax nightmare. <laughs> well, and I think it's hard too when you're having these conversations. And I don't know who Christine was speaking with and where she opened her 529, especially because that's another thing to consider is that 529s have two options. You can open them on your own doing individual plans, or you can open them through an advisor. Almost every state has both, uh, both options. What most people don't know is that your investment options with the advisor plan are exactly the same as your investing options in the individual plan. This is different than other types of investing because there are usually very limited options within a 529. There's age-based plans and risk-based plans, and then some really good ones like New York State and the Vanguard Fund and Illinois have options where you can actually grab uh, an index fund, like you could grab a total stock market index fund. But in general, you don't have a lot of options. And so the advisor is going to charge you an additional fee to open that account, sometimes that has an ongoing higher management fee, but then pick from the same pool of 15 investments that you were going to pick from anyway. And so generally, you can do it on your own and save yourself some money. That's just one thing for people who have not yet opened their 529s. But if this representative hasn't gone through your whole financial history with you, they really shouldn't be giving you advice like what to do with your 403B because they don't know your situation, especially something like a, a Roth transaction that could cause you penalties and taxes. That's something that you really want to work with somebody that you know has fiduciary duty, has gone through your history with you, and is really making individual recommendations that are best for you. Very nice. I am sure Christine is going to be so happy she asked you this. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she, so as well. <laughs> she actually has a second question. Her second question is, my children now have debit cards. What rules should I set up as far as making purchases? Ooh, okay. This is a good question. So it depends on how old your kids are, Christine, and it depends on what your family money values are as well. And so if you want to go back, we have a whole episode on, on creating your family money values. I'd recommend you listen to that because that's where you really go through with your partner if you have one or with your kids if they're old enough. What are you? What lessons are you trying to teach your kids about money? 
What level of autonomy do you want to give them? And what rules do you have about how you as a family use your money? Because if one of your values is environmentalism, and that means that you don't want to buy a bunch of little tiny plastic toys that are going to end up in the garbage, that's going <laughs> to depend on how your kids use your money versus something else. Now, in general, you do want to make sure that you have some oversight. I think when we talk about autonomy and kids that we th- that some parents are like, well, it's their money to do whatever the heck that they want with. And that's fine. But I think that having some barriers around how your kids use your money, their money is, is helpful in general. And so if you have rules as a family about what matters and what doesn't, like I said, with the little plastic toys or with violent video games or whatever it is, make sure you set those rules right from the beginning. And then watch their accounts, right? They're still minors. You are still the the head on those accounts. And so going in and checking what they're buying, how it's going is a good option. It's actually why I typically recommend Greenlight or... FAMZU, which are both parent-managed debit cards for kids. And so they actually have an app where you can approve transactions that your kids are going through that you get notified when they spend money. And it really helps you have an ongoing open conversation with your kids about money. So I'd make sure you have some oversight. And make sure that if it's like over a certain amount or if it's a certain category of things, you can set up rules of like, hey, you have to come talk to me before you swipe your card, right? So set that up right from the beginning. Now, the one other thing that I would mention here is giving your kids some sense of responsibility. So if they are earning their own money, they have allowance, they have money on their debit cards, start to teach them that there are responsibilities like giving or saving or having some some payment that they make. So some parents start to turn over kids buying their own clothing, right? Around age 12, this is how much money that we're willing to give you a year to buy your clothes. You can determine the type of clothes you want to buy but you have to budget it, right? Like if you're going to buy a $200 pair of jeans, you better figure out how you're going to get sneakers and all the other things that you need throughout the year. And so that's a big one, but you could also do, you know, their PlayStation subscription or their Netflix payment or whatever it is, just so that they start to plan that they have to set money aside for things and that they have to think past the moment when they're in the store and they want to buy something. So those are some of the things to consider, but this really comes back to setting up those family money values, to deciding what kind of responsibility you want to give your kids and what lessons you're trying to teach them. If you're not clear on exactly what you're trying to teach them, it's going to be really hard to make rules that matter both to you and to them and that you can stick to consistently. I love this advice so much. I cannot wait to do this with Ainsley. Obviously, it's a very long way off. But I got my first debit card. Literally, my college gave it to me because I had to have it for my financial aid. Like, nobody ever had conversations with me. I didn't really, like, grasp the very serious (laughs) consequences of some of the things that I did. And I'm just so excited to say, here is something that you get to be responsible for. Let's have lots of conversations about it. And, like, let's practice and actually get to do some of those things to just help her feel safe and confident in all those things because I know I didn't. I think that's a great point, right? Is that we're giving, we're teaching them these lessons a lot earlier than a lot of us learned them. And it it brought up something, Christine, that I want to mention, which is at this point, when kids get their first debit card, a lot of them have interacted with money in some form before they get that debit card, because we tend to wait until they're at least nine. But usually you hear from families somewhere around 13 when they get their first debit card. Before that, they've been used to managing money as cash. And it's much easier uh, for kids to have that physical representation of, okay, I have this much money in my spending. I have this much money that I'm setting aside in my piggy bank. And it gets harder once it's on a debit card and it's digital. Now, 
this generation, this new generation, is likely going to do almost all of their money management digital. And so this is also an opportunity to have good conversations about how do we track how much money we have digitally. Introduce them to an app like YNAB. If you use YNAB, Christine, you can actually create separate budgets for your kids. You have an unlimited number of budgets within your YNAB account. And so you can create an account for them and let them start to create their own budget categories or print out a ledger, a budget, and write down what they've spent and what they have left. Start building that practice of them knowing how much is in that account because when they get that card for the first time, it often feels like play money, especially to young kids, and they end up overdrafting or they end up not having money left in the account when they really wanted something. And so starting to teach them how do we budget digitally is an incredibly valuable skill before they go off to college and into the real world. That's a really great point because we didn't even experience that to this degree. So that for all the kids from from now moving forward, that's going to be a big deal. They might barely ever see cash. Absolutely. And I think that we saw that too with COVID last year, where all these small businesses started saying like, we're not taking cash for like cleanliness reasons, we're only taking cards. And that was really hard for certain segments of the population, the unbanked segments of the population. But in general, we're moving closer and closer to that uh, cashless system. And so it's it's important to understand how to manage. I think that leads us into the next question really nicely. It does really well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Our next question comes from Court, who it's a long one, y'all, who wants to know, what is your advice regarding credit cards? I was a diehard Dave Ramsey fan when I began my debt-free journey in January 2015. I did need to get rid of all credit cards because my spending was out of control. Now my husband and I are about to buy the house we're renting and pay off our van loan. Our van loan is the only reason we locked in a 2.25% interest rate because we don't have any other loans besides student loans, which I learned apparently do not count towards credit. She put in the eye roll emoji, which just makes me so happy. (laughs) So I'd like to keep a decent credit score because our plan is to move out of this house in five years to pay off all our student loans to become consumer debt free. We'd only owe on whatever house we move into. So we need to look at getting a credit card and just use it for gas or something to help us get our next house. I just don't know where to begin because I'm so used to credit cards are terrible. It's amazing how often we get questions like this from people who have moved forward in their debt journey when they're ready to take the next step. 100%. And I think that it's hard because some people do need that at the beginning. They need that discipline to say, I'm putting my cards away. I actually think when we had Kirsten Saunders on the podcast uh, last year, she talked about how like she had to actually freeze her credit cards in her freezer because she could not touch them. But credit cards themselves are not evil and they've been painted that way. Now, before we get into recommendations on on your debt and making sure you keep a good credit score, I want to mention first that student loans do count towards your credit score. What you might be thinking about is that 35% of your credit score is based on credit utilization, which is what percentage of your available credit are you using? Something like student loans that don't have a revolving credit balance, something like a credit card or a a home equity line of credit, they don't count towards your utilization because it's a loan. It's a different type of debt. Your payments on your student loans absolutely attribute to your payment history, and it's one of the ways that people build up credit scores when they're young is having that consistent payment from their student loans. So it does count towards your credit. It just doesn't count towards your credit utilization. Now, what I mentioned 
is that 35% of your score is credit utilization. So if you only have a van loan and student loans and a mortgage, that part of your score you're not going to have any help there because you don't have any revolving credit. This is where credit cards and credit lines get important. Now, some people will say that this is crazy and why would we be punished for not having debt? And you don't have to carry debt to get an incredible score in your credit utilization. You can pay off that credit card in full every single month and basically have a 0% or a 10% credit utilization, and that's going to boost your score a lot. And so the recommendation that the thing that you came up with, which is putting gas or Netflix on a credit card, sticking the credit card in a drawer and just paying off that one charge every month, that is going to super help your credit score, and I highly recommend you using it. Now, I want to roll back for a second. There are people, and you mentioned Dave Ramsey, and there's some other educators that talk about credit cards being terrible, credit cards being evil, and that you don't have to worry about your credit score if you live a debt-free lifestyle, right? Like, let's leave that to those people who, who rely on debt for their lives. The thing is, it's very close-minded, and it's very unsafe. And what I mean by that is most people can't buy their house in cash, Right. Court, when you go to buy your house, you're going to get a mortgage. Most of us do. Almost everyone does. If you get into trouble and you lose your job and your emergency fund runs out, especially you don't have a huge emergency fund and you need to survive for a couple months, you need a line of credit, you need a credit card. If you don't have a good credit score, you do not have access to those options and it puts you in a much scarier position than if you had a good credit score. Not to mention the fact that your credit score impacts many, many more things than the interest you pay on debt. They impact things like how you apply for life insurance. And in many states, this has been outlawed in, in some states, but in many states, it impacts the cost of car insurance. They weigh that into your score and what the uh, insurance agencies look like. And and just so you know, there's many different types of credit scores, all based on different aspects of your history. So when we talk about like FICO, which is 35% credit utilization, that's mostly used for debt. But insurance companies and other things will take pieces of that and create their own with their type of credit score is and apply it to these other applications. But when you look at like auto insurance, what they think is if they pull your credit score, your auto credit score, and they show a low score, they ding you as an irresponsible human being, and then it's much more expensive to get insurance, right? And so there's your credit score is very important. And so you've come a long way, it sounds like, court, you've been getting out of debt, you've been working on these things. If you can use a credit card responsibly, and even just like putting one charge on it, putting it in a drawer and paying it off is going to help your score a lot. There's also things to just bring into your life over time where there are rewards for using credit cards that can be beneficial. If you're paying your card off in full, there are rewards. There are security aspects that it's safer to use a credit card in a lot of ways because those cards have payment protection provisions that your debit card or using cash do not have, identity theft protections that those other things do not have. And so credit cards are not in themselves evil. And frankly, overspending doesn't make you bad with money. It doesn't make you evil. It's just that we have to work through some of those emotional spending blocks. Um, it's what we talk a lot about in Thriving Mindset in Foundations for the Society, but just figuring out what was causing that overspending and tackling that. So Court, I'd absolutely recommend you getting a credit card. Start with just one charge, like just you said, gas or one expense on the card for a while until you get comfortable. And then continue to keep whatever budget system you've put in place as you started this journey in 2015. And I think it really will help your score. It's going to help your mortgage. And it might help you feel a little bit more confident with money in, in general. Because as you said, like you have this mental fear about credit cards being dangerous. And I think that you've built a lot of the skills to use cards responsibly.
You gave her like everything that she needs to know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm long-winded today. I apologize to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Don't apologize. Don't apologize. That's never a bad thing. I asked you a very similar question probably a year ago, and I got a credit card. I put Dropbox on it. That's what I do. I, I pay it off every month to try and work on that utilization, rebuilding my credit. But I love that you went through the whole thing because I think a lot of people don't realize that having no credit can be just as frustrating as having bad credit. So if you never do any of these things where you're building it, you end up in the same position. Mm -hmm. And I think that we don't realize how often our credit score is used for things and it gets frustrating for people. I've had a good friend who has an issue with his student loans and it means that he gets dinged for something that's not actually he's even doing, but that he keeps having to get taken off, taken off, and it's crushing his credit score. And I've actually had it been difficult for him to get a job that he really wanted because some high-level jobs will run your credit report. And just like I was saying with auto insurance, they will determine whether or not that makes you a responsible human being, especially if you work in like finance or any kind of security position and they're wondering what you will do to make ends meet they will not hire you if you don't have a good credit score and a strong credit history. And so having that in place, like I said, does not mean you need to carry any debt. It just means you need to show that you can take responsibility for something and pay it off on a regular basis. Very true. All right, mamas, before we answer our next few questions, which cover some super fun things like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin investing, oh my God, I'm gonna rant. Let's take a quick break to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Mamas, talk about habits. I've used the same budgeting tool since my very first internship in college. This tool has been with me through every major life decision, reducing stress and helping me design a life I want. Sure, I've tried other systems just to see how they work, but none of them come close to matching You Need a Budget. You Need a Budget, or YNAB, operates on four simple rules that show you how to stop living paycheck to paycheck, get out of debt, and save more money so that you can spend your hard-earned cash on the things that truly matter most to you. It puts you in control and encourages you to actually align every dollar with your values. Looking to start a new budget habit for 2021? Look no further. You can start a free trial at YNAB, no credit card required, at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash YNAB. You know, Lauren, you and I both use YNAB, and everyone here has likely heard me say like a million times why I love it, but I'm sure they'd love to hear you share what you like about it now that it's part of your money routine. YNAB is like my favorite expense that I pay every year. I love that I can break it down as crazy as I want. Like I was listening to you talk about your subscriptions category the other day and I was like, that doesn't make sense to me at all because I have them built into whatever category they go with. But that is one of the things that I love about it. You have it designed exactly the way it works for your brain. I have it designed exactly the way that I like for my brain. I think one of my favorite things is my ability to like fund things in the future. Like Mm. I needed that piece to feel okay. It has reduced so much anxiety for me. And I think that's the reason when I really break it down that I love it so much. Well, also that cash flow focus too of when you use a traditional budgeting system and you set money aside before money comes in, you have to still triple check like, okay, is that money actually in the bank account for me to make that expense? Whereas YNAB, you're only budgeting cash that you already have in hand. So if the budget says you can pay that bill, you can pay that bill and you don't have to worry about overdrafting or any other issues. 
Yeah. And when you get to the point where you can take that a step further and you're like, okay, I have money left, but I need to give it a job. So like, I'm going to start filling in next month's, you know, like funding next month's expenses. That just makes me so happy. (laughs) I'm like, yes, I am succeeding as a human. (laughs) And that is one of their rules, right? Is to age your money and try to be living at the very least on last month's income. So you're paying all your bills in January from December's income. And it does create so much comfort and security. Ah, I love it so much. Me too. All right. Let's 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 get back on track and we'll keep ranting about wine or ranting. We'll keep raving about YNAB at another time, I'm sure. Yes, raving about YNAB, but you are going to rant about our next question. <laughs> so oh <laughs> Nancy asks, what is your take on Bitcoin investing? And when she shared this question, Court jumped in and said, yes, and Ethereum? I knew I was going to say that wrong or whatever oh, my sister right. keeps talking about. <laughs> okay. I'm going to stretch here for a second. You guys can't see me stretching, but I'm going to I'm going to talk about Bitcoin. Investing is a loose definition when you're referring to Bitcoin investing. And it's really interesting. We had a huge boom in Bitcoin investing a couple of years ago, uh, similar situation to what's happening now where the price was skyrocketing and everyone was asking about Bitcoin. Should we be investing in Bitcoin? Should we buy Bitcoin? Bitcoin, 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 cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is a type of cryptocurrency. For those of you who don't know, it's a, a digital currency. What happened last time was that we had this big boom and then it crashed by two thirds of its value. It lost almost 70% of its value almost overnight. When I say that investing is a loose term with cryptocurrency, this is still something that is not in wide use. It's been around for a long time now, but it does not have the regulations and the protections of other of other types of currency, of other types of investing. We actually have people who have lost hundreds of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars because they've lost their password to their Bitcoin wallet And there's actually no way to recover it. There's actually now organizations coming about that you can pay them a lot of money to try to recover your passcode. But there's no (laughs) – Lauren is like fanning herself thinking about losing hundreds of millions of dollars. There's no structure around Bitcoin at this point. There's no structure around cryptocurrency at this point. And it's still used for black market deals and very, very sketchy. It's been caught up in Ponzi schemes and all kinds of situations. And so it's not as secure as we would like it to be. And it doesn't have the oversight to avoid things like fraud that we would like it to have. Now, what we're seeing right now is this big bubble. And part of the reason for that is that you've had new investing platforms add the ability to trade Bitcoin. And so you've seen this influx of institutional money, which is things like hedge funds and mutual funds buying Bitcoin. Now, this is not to say that those organizations are making big bets on Bitcoin. Generally, what it means is that their investors are asking the same questions that you're asking and saying, are we missing some boom? And a hedge fund or something is saying, fine, we'll take half of a percent of our fund and we'll put it into Bitcoin as like a hedge. They consider that a hedge, just like gold would be a hedge. So you have this influx of money coming in, which is pushing the value up. You're also seeing a few instances where Bitcoin in particular is getting more, uh, slightly more widely used, which is like PayPal has introduced some ways that you can pay a few of your bills with Bitcoin. And that has made people think like, oh, is this actually the time that Bitcoin is going to become something in regular use? 
It's very, very funny to me that you see some professional athletes, we saw this at the end of last year, saying that they wanted to be paid in Bitcoin, which is hilarious because Bitcoin can't really be used to pay for anything. So what the team has to do is take US dollars, buy Bitcoin, give him Bitcoin. He has to then turn it back into US dollars to spend it. And the transaction and ridiculousness of this process is just not really what it is, okay? When I say that this isn't an investment to me, it's this is really more like gambling. We do not know what is going to happen with cryptocurrency going forward. It is not in wide use. It has a ton of regulation that needs to happen. And what that means is we have, you know, back when I was in, in my hedge fund job, we would call that stroke of the pen risk, which is like when somebody signs a law. And so if you think that sovereign nations are going to be like, yeah, yeah, cool, like devalue our currency, devalue the US dollar and the euro and the yen so that you guys can all use Bitcoin and that they're not going to try to regulate that at all, that's crazy. <laughs> There's going to be rules that have to be put in place for how this is tracked, for who is buying Bitcoin, where is it going, where is it stored, how do we make sure that people don't lose hundreds of millions of dollars because they lost their password – something that's still happening. Those regulations are going to come into place. And what that does to the long-term value of Bitcoin is completely unknown. We actually see this in a lot of up-and-coming industries, especially in places that are sensitive. We see it in the cannabis industry as well, right? We see a lot of stuff with this boom the last several years of, of cannabis being legalized in more places in the United States. And people ask about how could we invest in that and see that growth. And we have the same issue there, right? We don't have federal rules yet about how cannabis works. Um, those companies face a lot of struggles about how to get banking and things like that. And so there's a lot of risk in investing huge parts of your portfolio in those companies, even if they have great growth potential. We just don't know what that stroke of the pen risk is going to be. And the last piece of this that I would mention, we compare it to real investing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency are not real investing at the moment. But we talk about real investing. Bitcoin is a currency. And so investing in it or buying it would be like investing in euros or yen or other currency. This is a very, very difficult thing to do and something very few people do successfully. What you have to do is play the different exchange rates and understand when is the US dollar going to be more valuable than the euro, what is happening with interest rates, because a lot of what drives different foreign exchange currencies is what is the underlying interest rate in those countries. And so you're playing a really macroeconomic, trying to forecast what's happening in multiple different markets, which I'm sure most of you are listening to me go through this like, you know, can't get off my soapbox thing about, and you're confused. You're like, Chelsea, what the hell are you talking about? And that's what I mean. If you're confused right now, you probably shouldn't be buying cryptocurrency because it just, there's too many things going on. Now, Core asked about Ethereum. And so let's touch on this for one second. There are many different types of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is the longest standing uh, and the most well-known, but there are dozens and dozens of different types of cryptocurrency. Ethereum is another bigger one. And what happens is all of these cryptocurrencies are based on something called blockchain technology. And it basically hides these in a very simple way. And my cybersecurity friend is going to just rail about my horrible description of this, but it basically hides pieces of cryptocurrency deep in code. And so you have to have computers that have intense processing power and electricity to do what's calling mine cryptocurrency. And so people compare it to gold, right? So there's a limited supply of gold. There's a limited supply of each of these cryptocurrencies. And that some people think is like an inflation protection. If you're worried about governments just printing cash to cover expenses, 
this is more limited. And so it's getting compared to something like gold, a newer version of gold, which is also part of the reason we're seeing the boom right now is people are saying is this inflation protection when everybody is doing relief related to COVID and more money is being printed into the system. And so that's something to consider. But once again, just gold, by the way, has no intrinsic value other than we think it's pretty and that we use it as a, as a betting vehicle. Bitcoin can't really be similar. You can't really use it in your life. And so you're going to have to sell it to do anything with it. And so once again, you're back to making an FX risk. Is gold or is Bitcoin or is Ethereum going to be more valuable than the US dollar at some point in the future? And then you're making really macroeconomic plays. But to go back for a second about the fact that there's dozens of Bitcoin, uh, dozens of cryptocurrency options, it's all based on blockchain technology, which is open source which means how we no one owns this technology for any of these different cryptocurrencies. And so which one is going to win out and how many new ones come up over the next decade, we have no idea. And so in general, this is a very, very long answer to say that Bitcoin is betting and gambling in a lot of ways. We don't know what's going to happen. It's not widely used. There is stroke of the pen risk. And in general, if you want to buy Bitcoin, you want to buy Ethereum or whatever, I want you to keep it that half percent, 1% of your portfolio. I want you to take 500 bucks if that's a small amount of your overall investments put it in there, sit on it and see what happens. And if it goes to zero, well, you had some fun. And if it quadruples, quintuples, whatever, you can celebrate. But like, we don't know what's going to happen with this. And it's not a usable technology yet. And so I'd kind of avoid these big bubbles. And it's it's telling, I think, Lauren, that this only comes up when Bitcoin is suddenly up 10x. And everyone's like, am I missing the growth? And then we don't talk about it after it crashes for two years until it bubbles again. <laughs> Everybody might just have to rewind and listen to that a couple times to get anything out of my rant there. I think so. I love a good Chelsea rant, but oh man. <laughs> it's true. It's true. These things come up when it looks valuable. It looks like the thing people are going to miss out on when PayPal does things like put that little thing on the bottom saying, hey, you can use this now. I don't think I even actually really understood the extent of what cryptocurrency was. It's one of those things where I'm just like, eh, I don't have time for that. <laughs> but listening to you like break it down, I'm just like, yeah, that sounds like a risky mess I don't want to be involved in right now, which might not be the case for everyone. Even just hearing you say that would be like investing in the euro. I was like, oh, no, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, and it's like, a very risky version of investing in the euro, right? The euro is a stable currency. The thing is, when you're trying to invest in something like the euro, you're playing geo-arbitrage and you're trying to, to bet that the current exchange rate isn't the right exchange rate. And that's really hard to do. And then cryptocurrency is like the next level of that. Of yeah, Let's try it, to do that with a brand new currency. In, like Going through my head, I was like, oh, yeah, like I know people do that, but that's that's risky and, and complicated. And it didn't even occur to me until you said that, like, duh, you're talking about investing in a currency. Like, it's not just a thing. And so that 
made me all sorts of eh, but I'm very glad that I heard your rant. Well, I'm ho- hopeful it's not completely overwhelming people. And I'll mention just just real quick too, that thing about people losing their Bitcoin wallets. And this is often Bitcoin wallets can be saved like on a hard drive. And so there's people whose like computers get destroyed and then they just can't ever recover those Bitcoin um, or oh, those no. currencies. And there was an instance I was reading in Bloomberg just a couple of days ago about a hedge fund who had invested some money in, in Bitcoin. And they lost the password to it. And so this is a big, big issue because what happens is, in general, if you're an individual and you bought some Bitcoin and you lost it, you're pissed, but, you know, whatever. You're talking about an organization here who had fiduciary duty to their investors, took their investors' money, bought this thing, and then lost it. And the hard part is there's fault on on a lot of different places here, but any investment company is not used to having to keep track of things like that because the 21st century we our trades are all recorded what's you don't have to worry about losing stock that you bought or losing bonds that you bought it is all kept and calculated and and monitored in the moment in the absolute instant you make that trade and cryptocurrency does not yet work that way and so we're actually seeing as more banks and things try to invest in cryptocurrency and get involved in in this game, you're seeing regulatory agencies like the SEC try to determine, okay, then we need a, a set fixed way to know who is buying, who is selling, where it's kept in the way that we would with stocks. But because of how cryptocurrency is so often used for things like black market trade, the original creators and users of Bitcoin do not want that to happen, right? They don't want their name attributed to who owns these things. And so there is, there's going to be a lot that needs to be shaken out. And it's still completely unknown whether this ever becomes a mainstream thing, even though we've actually been hearing about it for now almost, you know, over a decade. We don't know where it's going to go. So I would generally, Nancy Court, this was a 15 minute way to tell you, I would just let that go. I would just ignore that. I could have probably could have said that at the beginning and then ranted, but you know, just, just focus on, focus on your index funds and carry on, carry on. Let's, let's move on to the next question. Oh y'all, I'm laughing so hard. We both like can't breathe over here. We're looking at each other like. Chelsea. Chelsea could have made that a 30 second answer, but she made it a 15 minute answer, but that's No, it's so important that I think especially to mamas in our community that when you staunchly disagree with something that you explain it so well because nobody has any question as to why you feel the way that you do. Yeah. So I appreciate it and I am sure that they will too. But let's move on. (laughs) (laughs) Our next question is from Amanda who says, I have a feeling this one is going to lend itself to an it depends, but I'm going to ask anyway. Hubs and I are saving up to do some home renovations in five years. I am toying with the idea of putting it into our brokerage account so that it can get better growth than in a plain savings account. I want to continuously add money so a CD is out. Other than the possibility of losses from potential market dips, what kind of tax implications could I see from my brokerage path? Oh my goodness. So Amanda is in the Motivated Mama Society, as you know, Lauren. And I love that she knows that it depends is like one of my most common answers that I give to money questions. But I always then give you your options. And I'm gonna explain. So we'll do that. We'll do that again. In in a way, this does depend. But what I would say for me is I would never invest money that you need in the next five years. If I was going to, I'd focus on bonds and not stocks. And in the place that we have bond yields right now, 
it's pretty low anyway. And so sticking in a high yield savings account is probably the safest option. We're making a really big assumption in this question, Amanda, that you're getting better growth than you would in a plain savings account. In a three to five year window, the market can be heavily volatile. We see times when the market is down 20%, uh, down more than 20% over over a short time frame. And we've actually been in a bull market, which is like a high growth market for 12, 13 years now, which is pretty much unheard of. Normally a bull market lasts about seven years. And so at some point this has to reset. And I'm not telling you to time the market. I'm not telling you any of those things. I'm telling you to always stick to the strategy of investing for the long term. And so I would not assume that you're going to make more money in the market over the next five years than you would just putting it in a high yield savings account. That could be a risky proposition because I know your question said, other than the possibility of losses from potential market dips, but I want you to know that potential market dips does not mean that you lose 5%. It could mean that you lose a quarter of your money that you've set aside for home renovations. And so you want to make sure you really understand what's happening there. Does that make sense, Lauren? Ouch, it does. (laughs) We also had a couple other questions about safe and easy ways to invest money, such as money saved for emergencies or for longer projects that you're hoping not to touch for one to five years. So in that shorter time frame window. Yeah. So I think that that would come to the same question, right? Of like, or the same answer of, I wouldn't invest that money. I think especially your emergency fund money. We do not put our emergency fund money in the market because the difference is between Amanda's question and a question about emergency fund is if it gets to be five years from now and the market dips, Amanda and her hubby can just push off renovating their house, right? They can be like, well, it's just just a thing that we don't do right now because you really only lose money in the stock market in the moment that you sell. So they could just choose not to sell at that moment. With your emergency fund, if you have an emergency you need the cash right now. And so if you have to pull it out at an inopportune time when the market is down, now not only have you lost money, but you have less money to help you cover that emergency is not something that we want. And so in general, I would keep any shorter term investments like this in a high yield savings account. It's much more secure than trying to invest it. Now, I do want to answer the second part of Amanda's question, which what kind of tax implications could I see from my brokerage path? The biggest thing you're worried about is capital gains taxes. And so there's two types of capital gains taxes you have to worry about. One is if you hold an investment for less than a year. And so if you put your money into the stock market, either stocks or bonds, the value does go up. Yay! The value that it's gone up, you're going to have to pay, if it's short-term capital gains, if you buy it and sell it in less than a year, you pay income tax level taxes on that gain. So you put in $1,000, it grew to $1,100. You don't owe taxes on $1,100. You owe taxes on the $100 of growth, okay, at your income tax level. Same thing with long-term capital gains where you're only paying tax on the gain amount, but if you hold it for more than a year, then you pay long-term capital gains, which is a much lower rate for most people than your income. Uh, That can be 0% at the lowest tax bracket up to around 15% at the higher end. And so you have to think about long-term capital gains as well and think about that versus your yield in a high-yield savings account. Yes, things look better, you know, in stock market investing for the next one to five years, but you are going to have to also pay that tax. And so balance that out as well. Now, if you don't have a lot of gains, you're not going to pay a lot of taxes and you're probably going to end up in about the same place you would with a high yield savings account. Anyway, um, if you have big gains, you're probably the taxes, you're still going to end up ahead, but this is a gamble that I wouldn't necessarily make with money that you want to use in the next few years. I have a question. Shoot. 
honestly, when I first read this question, I was wondering if five years was getting you to that point where like this would be a good idea. So where do you feel like that line between like short-term and long-term falls where investing that money actually would be a good idea? So five years is really the end. So I typically say anything that you need in the next three to five years, you don't invest. And so you're really getting closer with five years. I think the general length of a market cycle is about seven years, like I mentioned earlier. And so that's definitely when you hit that kind of longer term trajectory. But if you need the money in five years, if you're in that five to seven year window, or even the five to 10 year window, the difference is how you invest. So if you're investing for retirement, um, I'm 30 years old, so I'm still a long time from traditional retirement. My current retirement accounts are 90% stock, 10% bonds. I'm willing to take higher risk because I know I have the time to, to smooth out that volatility. For things that you need in a shorter term, something like five to 10 years, you're going to want to be much heavier in bonds because you don't, you can't weather that big volatility. And in general, stocks are much more volatile than bonds. And so you'd want to lean on, it depends on your asset allocation and what you want to do with that money. So yes, five years is right about when you could think about it. And like I said, if Amanda's comfortable with saying, hey, if we get to five years, we just won't do the investment if it's a bad time in the market, then sure, I'd, I'd put the money in an investment account and, and just be careful about what risk you're we're willing to take with that money. I got it. I got it. This makes so much more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> we have one last question. That one is from Tiffany, who says, where do I start for figuring out term life insurance for my husband and I? There's so many options online. I have a small policy from work, but I know it will never be enough. Thank you. It's such a good question to end on. Oh my goodness. Yes, Tiffany, There, first of all, your life insurance from work will not be enough. We did a whole article on the reasons for that last year. We'll link it in the show notes to this episode. So, you, so anyone who's wondering why we recommend having your own policy in addition to work can read through it. In general, there are a ton of options online, and term life insurance is not a complicated insurance product in general, and so there's not a lot of difference between insurance providers, except for one big thing that I want everybody to look at when they're considering term life insurance, which is... What is the AM best rating of the company? So the AM best rating is a rating of the financial stability of the insurance provider and the likelihood that they will be able to pay claims out. And so what you want is an A rating or better the AM best because you would never want a situation where you need your policy or your family needs your policy and the insurance company is like, hey, sorry, we ran out of money and we can't pay you back, right? That would be a horrifying situation. Other than that, there's not a ton of difference policy to policy, except for customer service, any riders that they might allow. So some companies have riders that like give your children some small policy or give you living benefits. So things that you get if you need long-term care or even just, you know, Haven Life has things like fitness benefits and wellness benefits. And it even gets you like a free will through trust and will if you have an insurance policy through them. And there's, so there's additional side benefits and customer service. Generally, I wouldn't overthink it. I'd get quotes from at least two to three companies. Like you said, online, you can get almost instant quotes from everybody. So start there and go to the one that makes the most sense for you and your family. Personally, I like Haven Life, who I mentioned. I like Bestow. The thing to remember with Bestow is that they are a no 
medical exam policy, which means that they can only underwrite people who are very, very healthy and who are younger and their policy sizes are smaller. So you can only go up to, I think, half a million dollars in policy. So if you need a bigger policy, you would want to go through Haven Life, Bestow, or then I would look at Policy Genius, which is a great option. We'll have links to all of these in the show notes. Policy Genius will give you quotes from multiple providers all at once um, and let you kind of select from that policy. But Tiffany, you're really just looking for that AM best rating and a company that you guys are comfortable with and, and dive in. There's not a ton of difference here. Don't get too caught up in all the different options. So true. Just make sure you're actually taking the step step forward and making sure your family's all protected. Yeah. And I would also watch out, Tiffany, too. Just one last thing. We've seen InsuraTech, which is kind of like new company startups, things like Haven Life, things like Bestow, that have made virtual underwriting a possibility so that they can do no medical exam policies that are still fully underwritten term life policies. There are a lot of no medical exam insurance that is very different from fully underwritten virtual policies. Those are different technologies. And in general, those policies are much, much more expensive and they have much lower limits of coverage. And so if you Google something like no medical exam life insurance, what you're likely to find is something that is meant for people who are already sick, people who already have issues, and they just need some minimum amount of coverage, mostly to cover something like funeral expenses. And that's signed off you know, no problem with the insurance company, assuming that you have a higher likelihood of needing your policy, which means your policy is more expensive and they're going to be willing to pay out less. So if you are someone who is very healthy, very able-bodied, and you don't want to have to go to the doctor, um, Haven Life or Bestow have options for that. Policy Genius also has a fully run- underwritten option for that now as well. But in general, make sure you know what you're applying for. Make sure it is proper term life insurance, fully underwritten term life insurance, uh, and you'll be good to go. See, I learn something every time we do this. Somehow, in all the times that I have listened to you talk about life insurance, I did not pick up that fact. <laughs> it's an important one, and I think it's something that comes up a lot where people people Google and then they email us and they're like, hey, you mentioned some quotes about life insurance on the podcast. I looked it up, and it's going to cost me $250 a month for a $50,000 policy which is a lot compared to like uh, my husband has a $500,000 policy and it costs us $26 a month. So they're like, why is it so much more expensive? And it's like, well, you're probably not looking at what is term life insurance and you might have, you know, and you also might have other health considerations. Everybody's policy is unique based on where you live, how old you are, your current health history and all those kind of things. Good to know. Good to know. Lauren, thanks for chatting for so long today. I was long winded today. I love it. Not like I don't see you enough as it is, but I still love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love having you here. We'll be back in February for another mailbag. I hope you have a wonderful inauguration day. Thank you so much. As I mentioned at the top of the show, mamas, feel free to send me your questions anytime via our voicemail at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash voicemail on social media or in our Mamas Talk Money free Facebook group. You can see an overview of today's questions with links to all the resources mentioned, as well as download your free Money Mama's Guide to Investing in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 90. My friend, thank you again for listening to the Smart Money Mama show. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and tell your friends. I truly appreciate it. Keep talking money, mama. I'll see you next time. <laughs>